This morning, I want us to consider one of the most well-known stories Jesus ever told in his earthly ministry. The popularity of this story goes well beyond the walls of the church and even finds acceptance in our secular society. The story is told in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. It's that passage I invite you to give your attention this morning. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's most holy word. Luke chapter 10, I'll begin at verse 25, I'll read through verse 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was John MacArthur who wrote that all parables are salvation stories. They are portraits of redemption. If that's true, then the story I just read for you is a case study in how to reach a religious person with the gospel. One day, Jesus was approached by a hotshot lawyer. He asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the very same question that will be posed to Jesus by the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. In our story, it's not a rich young ruler who asked the question, it's a lawyer. For Luke to describe this man as a lawyer is not to mean that he is a criminal defense attorney. It simply means that he is an expert in the Old Testament law. He is a man who has been well-schooled and educated in the Mosaic Covenant. He comes with the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the right question posed to the right person, but with the wrong motive. Luke says that he asked this question to put Jesus to the test. Ironically, Jesus took the lawyer right back to the law. He says, how do you read the Mosaic Covenant? What does the Old Testament say? And this man answered superbly. 
He demonstrated his cognitive mastery of the scripture. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus will give this very same response when the Pharisees ask him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus will respond by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then in Matthew 22, Jesus will give further commentary and say all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, the lawyer got an A+. He answered correctly. He answered superbly. If this had been a written test, he would have aced it with flying colors. And then Jesus looks at him and says, go and do likewise. If you want eternal life, all you have to do is love God perfectly and love your neighbor passionately. That's all you have to do. If you want eternal life, all you have to do is love God perfectly and love neighbor passionately. Most, if not all of us, can pick up what Jesus is putting down. We can clearly understand the instruction that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the things inside of us, and we've got to love our neighbor just like we love ourselves. We understand the teaching but the implementation of the teaching is quite problematic. Because if you have any depth of self-awareness, you have to come to the conclusion that you have a problem loving God perfectly. And you have a problem loving neighbor passionately. There are times when you, like I, we disobey God. And there are times when we disappoint people. There are times when God's commandment seems so overwhelming and our selfishness kicks in and we are downright despicable. And there are times when people just get on our last nerves and we don't like the people around us very much and there are times we find it difficult to love God perfectly and love people passionately. Yet this man, he was so brash, he was so arrogant he thought to himself, I know what it is to love God perfectly. I do that quite well. But he wanted to qualify his neighbor. Who is the person that I must love passionately? In this glorious exchange between the lawyer and the Lord, we have a great treasure. The lawyer wanted to clarify his self-righteousness. Jesus wanted to crush his self-righteousness. The lawyer wanted to clearly draw lines of love, and Jesus clearly wanted to blur the lines of love. The lawyer, he wanted to minimize his necessary obedience, and Jesus wanted to maximize his necessary obedience. This man wanted to feel secure in his religious activity. And Jesus wanted him to feel desperate for the Savior's salvation. This man wanted to know who to love. Jesus wanted him to know how to love. This man said, who is my neighbor? Jesus told him this story. 
there was a certain man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Even though this is a fictitious story, Jesus sets it in a literal location. The lawyer could well visualize that 17-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And even to this day, uh, the city of Jerusalem is elevated almost 2,500 feet above sea level. The city of Jericho is located about 800 feet below sea level. So literally, you had to go down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that 17-mile stretch was filled with drops and rocks, twists and turns. It was a rather treacherous road in our day, and it's extremely dangerous in the days of the first century. This was one of the most dangerous roads to travel in antiquity. It wasn't uncommon for this to be commonplace, a playground for robbers and thieves. They would hide in the shadows behind the rocks, and whenever anybody would make that twist or turn, they would come and jump them, rob them, take everything from them. Everyone knew that the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was treacherous, and it was very difficult and very dangerous. Jesus says a certain man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know where he was in this 17-mile journey. We assume that this man was a Jewish man. He's coming from Jerusalem, the sacred city. He's going to Jericho. Maybe he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Maybe he had gone on business. Regardless, he is leaving Jerusalem. He's on his way down to Jericho. And all of a sudden, a bunch of punks jumping. He resists, but... They overpower him. They beat him to a pulp. They strip him of his clothing. They rob every penny he has on his body. And they leave him half dead in the middle of the road. Lucky for him, a priest comes by that way. At least uh, you would think that would be fortunate for him. But not on this day and not with that priest. Jesus says that the Jewish priest comes and he sees the man And he intentionally goes out of his way. He he crosses the road and passes by on the other side. I know this is a story. And I know that it's challenging to speculate why the priest would do this. If Jesus wanted us to know his motive, he would have told us. But that doesn't stop people from guessing about it, right? Some have said, well, the reason that the priest refused to help this man in need was because he did not want to defile himself. For the Jewish priest understood that if he were to touch a dead corpse, and from his vantage point, that man looked dead, and if he were to touch the dead corpse and get his blood on his hands, he would be defiled. He'd have to go through a whole list of rules and regulations to be reinstated. He didn't have time to do that, and he didn't want to run the risk of being defiled. Still, other people have speculated that the reason the priest didn't stop by to help this man in need was because he was fearful. He was afraid that maybe those same thugs, those robbers, those thieves, were waiting for him to stop and to stare, and in that moment, they would jump him. So he wanted to get out as fast as possible. So others have said, well, the reason is because he's, he's busy. I mean, he's got a life to lead, and, and so he had too many things to do, places to see and people to, uh, to attend to, and so he, he needed to get away as fast as possible. Regardless, Jesus doesn't give us the motive But by his description, he describes for us a priest who apparently doesn't love God perfectly and he doesn't love neighbor passionately. A few moments later, 
a Levite comes by. Ah, oh, fortunate for the man who fell into the hands of robbers, here comes a Levite. You would think that a Levite would stop by. A Levite was a descendant of the tribe of Levi. He was an attendant to the priest. But the Levite sees the man, intentionally goes out of his way, crosses the road, and passes by on the other side. Once again, Jesus doesn't give us his motive. We don't know why he did, he did this. Probably for some of the same reasons that have been speculated for the priest. But regardless, Jesus is describing a Levite, an attendant to the priest, as one who apparently on this day did not love God perfectly, nor did he love his neighbor passionately. Now, more than one person has compared the priest to a preacher and the Levite to a deacon. I mean, if a preacher isn't going to stop by and help, then surely a deacon would help. Can I get an amen from some of the deacons? I mean, if the preacher doesn't take time, certainly a deacon's going to take time and stop and help somebody in need. But on this day, neither the preacher nor the deacon loved God perfectly or loved neighbor passionately. It's at this point in the story that the expert lawyer is thinking to himself, I'm off the hook. If this man is not the preacher's neighbor, and if this man is not the deacon's neighbor, then he's certainly not my neighbor. Because he is operating under a definition of neighbor. It would have been commonplace in that day to understand that a neighbor was somebody who looked like you, walked like you, talked like you, and acted like you. That's the general understanding of who a neighbor ought to be. So when he asks the question, who is my neighbor, he fully expects Jesus to at the very least broadly define neighbor as a fellow Jew. At the very least, liberally, he expects Jesus to say that your neighbor is anybody of your same nationality, anybody who believes like you do, anybody who's of the same Jewish strand as you. He expects that at least it's, 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 it's another person of your race. And narrowly, if Jesus doesn't define it as, as anybody who's Jewish, narrowly, um, he... he he may be describing a neighbor as, as one who is just like you. Because in this story, the expert's thinking, if, if the priest doesn't stop, that must mean that a priest only has to stop for other priests. And if the Levite doesn't stop, it must mean that the Levite only has to stop for other Levites. So I am an expert lawyer. Therefore, Jesus is going to define my neighbor as only another expert lawyer. Somebody who looks like me, walks like me, talks like me, believes like me, acts like, acts like me, votes like me right? That's my neighbor, somebody who's just like me. And he expects Jesus to now narrowly define neighbor. But then a question pops in his mind. If this man is not the preacher's neighbor, and if this man is not the deacon's neighbor, then who is a neighbor to this man? How is Jesus going to define this man? So that someone just like him will have to stop and minister to his needs. It's at this point that Jesus blew the Gucci sandals right off the feet of the expert lawyer. Jesus said, a Samaritan came by. A Samaritan saw the man and took pity on him. He went over and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, 
picked the man up, placed him on his own donkey, led him to a local inn. And there he stayed with him all night long. The next morning, he said to the innkeeper, here are two denarii. If you incur any additional expense, I'll reimburse you when I come back. You know I'm good for it. When Jesus got to this part of the story, you could have heard a pin drop. The crowd was dumbfounded. And the old expert in the law, he, that lawyer was wide-eyed and jaw-dropping in shock. You mean to tell me that a, a Samaritan is going to come and help a Jewish man who fell into the hands of robbers? It's very hard for us to feel the weight of this story. I probably don't have to tell you that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. To say they didn't like each other is to put it mildly. This has been going on for 700 plus years. In 722 BC, when the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported many of the Israelite men. They imported many Assyrian soldiers. Those Assyrian soldiers married the remaining Jewish women. What was produced? The descendants. Those descendants? Samaritans. To a devout Jew, a Samaritan was regarded as impure, half-breed, second-rate citizen. Because those Samaritans were raised and they had uh, pagan Assyrian backgrounds with a flair of Judaism. And so they worshipped incorrectly. They had a bad theology. Uh, their, their lifestyle was just horrendous. And so to a devout Jew, a Samaritan looked like a second-class, impure citizen. And they were taught from the earliest of ages, you hate Samaritans. And Samaritan mommy and daddies taught their children, you hate Jews. And this has been going on by the time of Jesus for 700 years. In fact... It was so thick in its animosity that even when Nehemiah came back after the Babylonian captivity, hundreds of years after the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, when, when, when Nehemiah comes back and when he rebuilds the wall around the sacred city of Jerusalem, he does not allow any Samaritans to participate in the rebuilding effort. And they get so ticked off. They're so angry. They say, well, we'll just go to Mount Gerizim and we'll build a temple there unto our version of God. There was so much animosity, and it was so hateful all throughout the centuries. So Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So Jesus, in this moment of the story, had the audacity to make a Samaritan the hero of the moment. Once again, even with that explanation, we don't really feel the weight of this hatred. We don't feel the weight of the story. If you and I were living in the 1770s in a Virginia colony, and if I was preaching to you about this story, I may compare it to a British redcoat who came to the aid of a soldier in the Army of America. If you and I were living in the days of the Civil War, 1865, let's say. 
And if I were to preach this message to you, I just might compare this story to the fact that a, a Union officer came to help a Confederate soldier from the state of Alabama. If we were living just a few decades ago, in the 1960s, during the civil rights controversy, I may compare this story and describe it in this way. It would be like a white man who came to the aid and the assistance of a black man in downtown Birmingham. But today, what I could say is that this story could be compared to an Islamic terrorist who comes to the aid of a hurting American. Or a member of the gay and lesbian community comes to help a conservative Christian in need. In any of those scenarios, if you think to yourself, yeah, right, like that would ever happen, it's only then that you begin to feel the weight of this story. That's the response Jesus wants to evoke from the listener. Yeah, right. Like a Samaritan's ever going to come to the aid of a Jewish man. You've lost your bonkers, Jesus. There's no way that would ever happen. And only in that moment do you begin to feel the weight of the story. And then, did you catch the lavish love that the Samaritan showers upon the man who had fallen into the hands of the robbers? I mean, once you get your mind around the notion that a Samaritan's coming to help a Jewish man. Then go a little bit deeper and see the extravagance of the love that's displayed on this day. This man sees the person in need and he takes pity on him. And he goes over and he bandaged this man's wounds. That must mean that the Samaritan began to rip strips of linen from his own garments. Because the man lying in that bloody mess had been robbed and beaten and stripped. He has very little clothing, if any at all. And so in order for him to bind his wounds, he's got to rip some strips of linen from his own garments or from uh, garments he has in his luggage. And he takes them and he is hoping just to stop the bleeding. And then he takes some of his own oil and wine. The oil would have been soothing. The wine would have served as a disinfectant. So he's, he's pouring this onto the open sores of this man. And then this Samaritan literally picks up the man. The priest and the Levite would not even get close enough to smell the blood or look at the blood or even see if this man was alive or dead. But the Samaritan gets down and dirty and he gets there with him and he picks him up and some of that man's blood is smeared on the cheek of the Samaritan. And he gets some of that blood on his clothing and he literally picks him up and he hoists him onto his own beast of burden, his own donkey. And then he takes the man to a local inn. It's not like the Samaritan had no place to go. It's not like he had nothing to do. It's not like he was, he was just meandering around. No, 
He, he was a man on a mission. He had some place to go, somebody to see, something to do. But he went the extra mile. He took time out of his busy schedule. And he took the man to the inn. He didn't just, he didn't just check him in the hotel, but he stayed with him all night. He made sure he was okay all night long. The next morning, he wakes up and he gives the innkeeper two denarii. And then he tells him, if you incur any additional expense while I'm gone, I'll reimburse you. You know I'm good for it. My friend, does that not sound like a perfect recipe for extortion? I mean, that innkeeper could come up with any number he wanted, any astronomical number. Oh, well, I incurred 4,375 denarii while you were gone. I mean, I just made the bill this morning right before you got back. I mean, right? I mean, he could make up any number he wanted to. It's Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke who brings our attention to the fact that this Samaritan gives two denarii up front. Daryl Bach says that in that day, for this man's total needs to be met in that inn, it would have cost one-twelfth denarius daily. One-twelfth. So by this man giving two denarii, what he's saying is, I'm going to take care of your next 24 days or the better part of a month. And if you have any additional expense, I promise you, I'll pay. I'll reimburse. Who loves like that? Honestly, who loves like that? Do you make it your aim to go out of your way to look for people in need. And then, when you meet their needs, you do it with such extravagance that you pay for their mortgage, you pay the, their utilities, you pay their car payment, you pay their groceries for a month, and then you give them the promise, if you need more, I can cover. Who loves like that? For most of us, we love ourselves like that don't we? I mean, we, we love ourselves like that. We pay our mortgage, we pay our rent, we pay our car payment, we pay our utilities, we pay for groceries, we pay for our own gasoline, we pay for ourselves like that. We love ourselves like that. We may even love our children like that, to a degree. But some of you know the reality that you have grown children, and sometimes those grown children, they get in a bind, don't they? And you come along and you love them like that. You help them with a mortgage payment. You help them with utilities. You, you help them with a car payment. You love your children like that. Some of you just might, on occasion, love someone who's not a family member like that. I mean, you, you may um, help somebody out with a grocery bill. You may pick up somebody's lunch you may help someone with a utility payment, but that's, that's the exception, not the norm. So who loves like that? Who, who loves in this way? The truth of the matter is this. We have neutered the Good Samaritan story. Because we've reduced it down to say this. If you do anything that's nice for anybody at any time, you are a good Samaritan. 
If you do anything that's nice for anyone at any time, then you are a good Samaritan. So that if we hear of somebody who gives a couple of dollars to the homeless guy that's located at the exit ramp, we say, now that is a good Samaritan. If we hear of somebody who volunteers their time once a month at a local soup kitchen, we say, now that is an example of a good Samaritan. If we hear of somebody who writes a $100 check to Red Cross, we say, now, now that guy, he is a good Samaritan. If we hear that somebody cuts somebody else's grass, or if somebody uh, picks up the meal in the drive-thru at McDonald's for the next car behind, we say, wow, that person is a good Samaritan. Now, don't misunderstand me. All those examples are wonderful examples to do. It's all great, but Jesus tells this story so that you and I will lavish love, not just sprinkle it on people. So that you and I will love consistently, not just occasionally. Jesus asked, which one of the three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This Samaritan is so racist. This, this Jewish guy is so racist, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, I, I suppose the one who was merciful. He can't even verbalize the word Samaritan. He's got such a, an axe to grind with the Samaritan people. He is so racist to the core that he can't even say the word Samaritan. And he says, I guess the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus tells this story to answer two questions. The first one is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. The second question is, who is my neighbor? That equally is a great question. I'm going to answer both those questions in reverse order. Who is my neighbor? This is your neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone who has a need that you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. Your neighbor has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with geographical location. Your neighbor has nothing to do with the person that lives on your right, on your left, up the street, or in the neighborhood. Your neighbor is anyone who has a need you're in a position to meet. That anyone could even include the person you despise. It could even include your enemy. It is anyone who has a need that you are in a position to meet. Once again, Jesus did not tell this story to show us who to love, but he gives us this story to show us how to love. And how we love is that we must lavish love on anyone who has a need we're in a position to meet. Anybody. As I thought about this sermon in conjunction with the outreach initiative of Mug Your Neighbor, it truly dawned on me this week that that coffee mug is really trite in light of this sermon. I mean, we're, we're asking you to take a coffee mug to somebody who needs Jesus, somebody who needs a church home, somebody who needs a faith family, and we're asking you to give them a $3 mug and invite them to church or invite them to Christ. 
in light of this sermon, what we ought to do is we ought to look for people where we can pay their mortgage for the month, where we can pay their utilities for the month. And right now you're going, whoa, hello. I'm okay with a $3 mug. I mean, when we see this in its perspective, if there's anybody who doesn't pick up a mug today, friend, you've got some serious spiritual issues. I mean, if you don't pick up at least a mug to give to somebody, to invite them to church, to invite them to Christ, then you've got some serious spiritual issues of apathy and laziness and, dare I add, uselessness in the kingdom of God. I mean, We've got to be neighborly. Who are we supposed to love? Anybody who has a need, we're in a position to meet. That's our neighbor. Then Jesus is asking an even bigger question. He's answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All you have to do to inherit eternal life is you have to love God perfectly and love people passionately. That's it. That's all that's required. It's just perfection. You've got to love God perfectly. You've got to love your neighbor passionately. Your neighbor is anybody who has a need you're in a position to meet. So in order for you to have eternal life, you've got to be perfect. What the expert hotshot lawyer ought to have done is in that moment... He, ought to be, he, he should have become self-aware of his own sinfulness and said to Jesus, I can't love like that. I don't know how to love like that. I don't know that I've ever loved like that. My love for God is, is blemished. My love for people is broken at best. There are some days I do pretty well, but there are a lot of days I fail miserably. There are days that I disobey God and I do it intentionally. And there are days that there are people that get on my nerve and there are certain people that know how to get on my nerve and just stomp on it, right? I mean, there are times when we're not perfect. There are times when we disappoint God, when we disappoint people. This expert hotshot lawyer uh, should have fallen on his face before the Lord and said, please forgive me. But in great Luke fashion, We don't know how he responded. Luke doesn't tell us. Jesus just said, go and do likewise, and he gives us no conclusion to the story. Luke just continues on with the very next passage. It's almost as if the author, Luke, invites you into the story, and he wants you to finish it. How do you respond? What do you do? This morning, uh, I want to be very crystal clear How do you walk away from this story? I want you to trust and turn. I want want you to trust Jesus as Savior. And I want you to turn from your selfish sinfulness. The only appropriate response to the story of the Good Samaritan is this. Just say, I receive Christ. And I want to lavish love on God and people. And I can't do it in and of myself. 
And the only way I can do that is if I take perfection into my life and the only one who is perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologians call it imputed righteousness where the righteous innocence of Christ is imputed unto us, reckoned as belonging unto us so that when God looks at us as we come through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, God sees perfection. It's the perfection of the Son clothed on sons and daughters of God so when God looks at me and he looks at you, he sees someone who loves him perfectly and loves people passionately because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ our Savior. And that's the only way that we can respond to this story. And I don't know how the hotshot responded. I don't know what the expert did. I would hope that he would receive Christ I would hope that he would leave that experience lavishing love upon God and upon other people. But I have a sneaking suspicion that he just walked away. Why? Because he wanted to test Jesus. Why? Because he wanted to justify himself and his own religious actions. So this morning, I want you to be able to stand and sing and shout and say something that the expert lawyer probably did not shout and say, and it's this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The only way we stand innocent in the, in the presence of God is by standing on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus clothes us with his innocence, and he adores us with his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son our savior and then Jesus looks at us and says to us what he said to the expert lawyer go and do likewise so how do you respond receive Christ he's the only standard of perfection that you can be clothed with and once you receive Christ, then go and lavish love on God and on people. Love God as perfectly as you can. Love your neighbor as passionately as you can. Who's your neighbor? It's anyone. Anyone who has a need you're in a position to meet. So my friends, go. And do likewise. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. That for someone who is not a Christian, I pray that today, in this moment, they will receive you as Christ. For those of us who are believers, and we just have a knack of loving ourselves extravagantly, Lord, will you show us how we can love our neighbor passionately? That the love that we lavish upon ourselves, that we just might lavish upon somebody else in the hopes of communicating the good grace of the gospel. So Lord, we give you this invitation. Have your way, we will respond in obedience.
We don't want to minimize our obedience. We want to maximize our obedience unto you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.